Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. So let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Very, very short runway here that James gives us. Verse 1 is the setup for the whole book. So we'll read verse 1 and then we'll jump into our paragraph for today, which is 2, 3, and 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Short and sweet. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, we want to set up the book. Book of James. We want to answer a couple of questions. First, who's the writer? I'm going to give you you a guess. Who do you think the writer of the book of James is? Man, you guys are sharp today. James, you got it. If you didn't get it right the first time, I was going to give you like two or three more tries, give you some hints, but you got it. James is the writer. Now, there are several Jameses that we come across through the Gospels, but this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you're wondering, it's the same mom, different dad, okay? Half-brother of Jesus. Some of you are going to get that on your way home from church today. It's the half-brother of Jesus. Mary was his mother. Fun fact about James. James did not put faith in his brother, Jesus, as the Messiah until after the resurrection. So as we see the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel, James was a skeptic. But sometime shortly after that resurrection, he was fully convinced. And then he quickly became a prominent leader in the first church in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, James would have been considered what we might call the lead pastor or the senior pastor among others, among other pastors. He was the first among equals at that church, and so he had a prominent position of leadership. And he identifies himself right here in verse 1, James. This is how he defines himself. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, servant of God, it's an expression of humility, but it's also an expression of honor. It's an expression of humility because he understands that Jesus is his Lord and God is his master and he is following his commands. But it's also an expression of honor. What a privilege to be a servant of the Most High and to serve the church in this capacity. That was James's heart towards his role and responsibility, a servant of God. The second question we want to ask is to whom is he writing? So James is the one who's writing and to whom is he writing? Well, we see it right there in verse 1. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now these are all descendants of the twelve Jewish patriarchs. These would have been Messianic Jews. They would have been Jewish followers of Christ. They put faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And there was a great amount of persecution that came to this early first century church. And so they were described as being part of the dispersion or part of the scattering. And so it's important to understand that James is not writing to one localized church. 
Most often when we read the writings of Paul, he is writing to one localized church. But this is many different churches, if you will, or many different Christians. They've been scattered. They're not in one local region, but they're all descendants of those 12 patriarchs. They're Jews. The third question about this book that we want to answer is, what is the context? And this is probably some of the most important context for you to get and to understand. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference this and come back to this over the next several weeks because context is king. And if you, if you miss the context, it's not going to make sense why James is saying what he's saying and the way that he's saying it. So what is the context? Four realities about this context. Number one, this is 100% a Jewish audience. No Gentiles, no non-Jews here. They're all Jewish followers of the Messiah. So James is going to assume a lot of things about these people that they know to be true and that he knows to be true that we may not necessarily know to be true. He's going to assume some things that they're going to know that we might not know. And so I'm going to try to do some work and do some backfill to make sure that we're all on the same page with the ears of these Jewish listeners. The second truth about this context is that this is the earliest post-resurrection book. The writings of Paul had not been written yet. So this is the very first letter, the very first writing after the resurrection of Christ. So these are first-generation Christians. Many of them would have been at the Sermon on the Mount. A good majority of them would have come to faith at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So they're brand new, brand new to the way of Jesus and following him. That's important. The third truth about this context is that James preaches the what and assumes the why. Now that gets James in some trouble from time to time. And some people take issue with the book of James and there's a little bit of conflict from th- in some of the things that he says and we'll address that as we work through this. But a lot of that has to do with because he's going right for the what and he's assuming the why. That doesn't mean that the why doesn't exist. So we'll be talking a lot about the why and filling some of that in because if all you do is the what, you end up with Pharisaical Christianity. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. James is going to just kind of cut right to it and give us the what. He's going to assume the why. It's there, but he doesn't address it. Certainly not as much as someone like Paul may have done in some of his writings. And the fourth truth about this context is that James cuts to the chase. Not a lot of fluff, not a lot of run around, not a lot of just kind of meandering around the topic. He's just, he's going right for it. Cuts right to the chase. Growing up as a kid, if you ever had your mom or your dad sit you down and have one of those family meetings, you know what I'm talking about? There's something they need to address in you as kids and they need to address it pretty sternly. So they sit you down in the living room and they say, okay, here's the deal. This needs to change. You need to stop doing this. You need to start doing this. I love you. Go brush your teeth and get ready for bed. Like that's just kind of how it goes. There's not a lot of fluff. There's not a lot of context. It's in your living room. It's with your family. It's with your parents. That's what James is doing here. He's very comfortable in his living room. He's talking to his family. And so he cuts to the chase. He goes right to the what of gospel Christianity. He assumes some of the why. And so sometimes if James comes across a little short or a little curt, it's just because he's really comfortable with the people that he's talking to. It's kind of like there's some family business that James wants to take care of. So that's the context of the book. So I want to set up the book, so keep that in mind. 
we'll come back and reference some of that as we move through the book. Second thing I want to do, and this will be much briefer, is I want to set up the series. So we've entitled this series, Gospel on the Ground. Gospel on the Ground. John MacArthur says about the book of James that James is an intensely practical manual for Christian living. What does the gospel look like in everyday context? We're going to talk about some pretty practical stuff. Our tongue, the words that we speak, our faith and our works, and how those two must always accompany each other, and how faith, apart from works, is going to be a dead faith. It's some pretty practical stuff. We're going to talk about the poor, the fatherless, true religion and what it looks like among us. And so we've entitled this Gospel on the Ground because we want the gospel to gain traction in your life. We don't want the gospel just to be ideas or theories, but I want you to be able to like put the gospel into your pocket and take it with you on Monday morning. Practical, everyday, rubber meets the road, gospel on the ground. That's the series. Now, number three, and this will be the rest of our time together, we want to dive into the first paragraph. Let's read it again, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. This is where we're going to sit for the remainder of our time. Again, right to the chase here, he jumps right in. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So right out of the gate here, it's a pretty heavy topic, but he's going right for it. Trials, difficulties, misfortunes, discouragements, setbacks. He says, count it all joy. If you're keeping notes, here's the big idea that sits over top of the text. We'll unpack this for the next several minutes. Right responses to trials yield right results from trials. Right responses to trials yield the right results from trials. Now let me ask you this morning, have you ever responded poorly to a situation? Do you ever respond the wrong way? What happens? You end up with the wrong results, don't you? As a dad, unfortunately, I do this more often than I'd like to admit with my kids, where I respond in a way where I have to go back later and apologize. And we do that. And sometimes parents, moms, dads, if you're not careful, if you are consistently responding the wrong way to the mistakes of your children, the result is you crush the spirit of your child. Maybe you're at work and your boss comes to you and says, hey, I've got a project I want you to do and this is how I want you to do it. If you go rogue on your boss, if you don't respond properly to what he's asking you to do, what are the results going to be? Well, you're probably going to have to dust off your resume you're probably going to have to go to Indeed.com and like start putting out your application for other jobs because you responded poorly to that situation and the result is that you're going to have to look for another job, buddy. Or maybe you've gotten pulled over by a police officer. That's happened to all of us. And if you respond poorly in that situation, like if you just kind of let yourself get in the flesh a little bit and, and you, know, you start making excuses and you start pushing back and you just start causing trouble, guess what? you're going to end up spending a lot more time with that officer than you wanted to spend. That's going to be the result of a poor response to that situation. The reality is it's harder to respond properly to bad news and to tough situations than it is to good news and easy situations. 
So the context of our paragraph today is difficult situations, trials, complications in life. It's always going to be harder to respond properly to difficult situations than to the easy ones. But trials will either bring out the best or bring out the worst. And it will all be dependent on how you respond. You respond poorly, you'll start to see bitterness and anger and resentment creep into your life as you start to blame God for those trials in your life. But if you respond properly, you'll start to gain greater perspective and understanding of the goodness of God as he is working all things together in your life. So I recognize today's topic is a hard one. It's a difficult one. It's a heavy one. But I promise you, the results are worth it when you respond properly to trials. So right responses to trials yield right results from trials. So the question becomes, well, what are the right responses? What's the correct way to respond to a trial? Our text is going to answer that question and show us the three proper responses to trials. If you're writing these things down, it's going to look like this. Number one, I respond properly to trials when I flip the focus. When I flip the focus. It's verse two. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now this is going to sound a little reminiscent to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Matthew 5, Jesus said something that sounds very similar to what James, his brother, is now going to say some 50 years later when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Really? Jesus, are you kidding? That's what you want me to do? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yes, this is a little backward. Yes, this is a little paradoxical. You're going to have to flip some things around. Flip the focus here. Count it all joy. That's not going to be the natural response that you're going to want to have towards your difficulties. But it's one that the Spirit of God can produce in you. I don't know about you, but I have found that trials come in all shapes, sizes, shades, and degrees. They they also often come in groups. They come with friends. Trials come in pairs. Trials come in trios. They just seem to all come and hit from every angle. James talks about it here, the second half of verse 2. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, most times in scriptures, when it talks about trials, it is speaking of the trials that come because of our faith in Jesus. We looked at some of those when we studied the book of 1 John. But James kind of broadens them out here. He says trials of various kinds. So yes, because you are a follower of Jesus, there will be difficulty and there will be trials. But there are all kinds of different trials that come for many different reasons as well. So I was thinking about some of the other ways that trials come or some of the other places where trials originate trials often come in our life because of satan we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers in dark places in the wickedness of this world see jesus is not the only god there are also other small g gods Demonic forces and demonic powers opposing the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus in this world. So when you get on mission for Jesus 
expect some of that opposition. Some trials also come just because creation is under the curse. Romans 8 talks about how all of creation is groaning for that final redemption. And so some of the sicknesses and the ailments that you might be dealing with today are a direct result of the fall of man back in Genesis chapter 2. Other trials originate with me. I mean, let's just be honest this morning, right? Sometimes I bring them upon myself. My bad decisions, my sinful decisions, my wrong desires bring difficulty and bring trial into my life. But the fourth place that some of these trials originate is just life itself. Like, I don't know that it's necessarily Satan who gave you that flat tire. Sometimes you just drive over a nail. Like, life just happens. Anything that puts pressure on your faith in God, and sometimes that little nail puts a whole lot of pressure on your faith in God. Trials of various kinds. I love what James says. He says, when you meet trials, that word meet has the idea that you didn't see it coming. It's just kind of like, hey, buddy, I'm just going to kind of insert myself into your life, cause some difficulty for you. When trials come along, they come in all different shapes and sizes, but listen, the gospel produces a different kind of a response to trials of various kinds. James says, count it all joy. Now let's pretend for a moment that we didn't just read that verse. How would you finish that sentence? Count it all joy when, fill in the blank, when there's a little extra money at the end of the paycheck, when the kids put themselves to bed without fighting each other, like that's when I count it all joy, right? We would not finish that sentence the same way that James did. But that's the gospel on the ground. That's the gospel getting traction in your life. When you flip the focus and you respond paradoxically, where you want to respond one way to trials, you actually respond a spirit-filled way. And that goes to Galatians 5, doesn't it? That it's the Spirit within us that produces joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And so there is this calculated supernatural response when he says, count it all joy. Consider it all joy. I don't know if you're any good at math. Just bringing up that word creates some anxiety in the room. I can feel it. But you know what I've learned? I, 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 in high school, I, I, did, I did okay in math. I got up into some calculus classes. But here's what I learned about math. Here's what kind of helped me to advance in math. I learned how to use a calculator. You don't have to be good at math to know how to use a calculator, right? What do you do? You punch in the numbers, and you hit the little equal sign, and it gives you the response. It gives you the answer. You know what I believe is happening here? We can punch in our trials and it's the Spirit of God, not you. You don't have to be good at trials to have joy in trials. But it's the Spirit of God producing something that you cannot produce in and of yourself. Count it all joy. That is a disposition of the Spirit of God in your life. So if you don't have the gospel, you can't produce joy in trials. If you don't have Jesus, you can't produce joy in trials. But with Christ... That joy starts to be the result because we have flipped the focus. You see what you want to see. You can look at your trials and you can see the negative, and you're going to see the negative because you see what you want to see. 
You're going to see all of the things that you have lost because of that trial. You're going to see all of the pain. You're going to see all of the pressure. You're going to see all of the heartache because of that. And then you're going to start to put some blame on God. You're going to see what you want to see in that trial. But if you flip your focus, you can start to see the positive. You can start to understand that God is wanting to work something in your life that he could not have worked apart from that difficulty. And it will start to produce joy. In the book of Acts, there's a story about the apostles who had been arrested, put in jail, and then put on trial because of their faith in Jesus. Listen to their response in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is not a natural response to difficulty. That they were in jail, then they were put on trial, and they were just leaving the place like praising God. Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. That is something that God produces in us. Flip your focus. Change your perspective. It's paradoxical. It's a little bit backwards. It's something that the Spirit of God is going to have to produce in and through your life. I respond properly to trials when I flip the focus. But secondly, I respond properly to trials when I value the repetition. When I value the repetition, this is verse 3. He says, for you know. That word know is an experiential knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It sounds like they've been here before. It sounds like this isn't the first time they've had to experience a trial. And if we were honest with ourselves, we've all got some history. And if you look back and thumb back through the history of your life, you've had trials that God has brought you through before. And, and value the reality and the fact that God is now allowing you to go through them again because it's repetition that's the key to learning. They say that experience is the best teacher. God is using the experience of trials in your life and in my life to teach us. God doesn't just get you through. He makes you better. He makes you better. That's what's going on in verse 3. I want you to see it. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing, <laughs> that's another word with, that goes into the category of math, doesn't it? Like we don't like that word. The testing why, do, why does God test us? Why does he try us? He wants to see if we're getting the information. He wants to see if we're learning. He wants us to get better, not just get through. And so when you see that word testing, the idea there, the image there is that of fire, heat. Because that fire has the ability to purge things out of your life that apart from the fire would not be purged out of your life. Proverbs 27, 21 says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. So I've got some good news for you this morning. If you are going through the flames, if you're feeling the heat of the trials, it's because God views you as silver and gold. Because the proverb says that the crucible is for silver and the fire is for gold. And so he values you too much to allow those impurities to stay in your life. Our faith has impurities. I, I wish our faith was just perfect. <laughs> I wish we didn't ever have any doubts. I wish we didn't ever have any insecurities. I wish we didn't ever feel stuck 
and unable to move. I wish our faith just kind of was always constant. But the reality is sometimes our faith has impurities. And so God allows the trials to burn out the impurities so that what remains is the purest form of faith and confidence and trust in our life. There is a story tucked into the Gospels where a man, a father of a little boy who has demon possession in him, comes to Jesus. And he wants Jesus to cast out the demons from his son. We can understand that. Any father, any parent would want Jesus to do that. And so he comes to Jesus and he makes this statement. He says, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Some impurities there. It's an impure faith. But here's what's amazing to me about that story is that in the verse just before it, Jesus says to the man, all things are possible for the one who believes. So get this scene. Jesus, the very living, breathing son of God, is standing before this man. And he looks at him. He says, all things are possible if you will believe. And the man looks back at him. He says, I believe. Sort of. I mean, he's looking at the very face of God and doubting. He has given a personal promise from the Son of God. If you believe, all things are possible. And he still doubts. Have you ever been there? Like you've got the promise from God. You've got the word from God. You've got the confidence of his presence. And yet there are still some impurities in your life. Aren't you thankful that Jesus will do for you what he did for that man? And he still healed his son of the demon possession. He doesn't allow your imperfect faith and my imperfect faith to keep him from working. But here's what he will do. He will be gracious enough to allow trials in your life. Because, because it is the gracious gift of the fire of trials that will burn away the impurities of your faith. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is what comes out on the other side of the oven. You put impure faith in on the one side of the oven, and on the outside you get a pure faith that is producing steadfastness. That word means patient endurance. Now here's what I have found. Improvement always comes with reps. Repetition. You've got to value the reps. Now I've, I racked my brain a little bit this week, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but I cannot think of a single area of life where we don't get better by doing it more. So I want to be careful to use superlatives, but I'm going to use one here. We always improve through repetition. Always. It doesn't matter. Whatever you do for your job, like you might be, you might be a mechanic, you might be a nurse, you might deal in finance, you might be a teacher. Whatever you do, every day you go to work, the more you do it, the better you get at it. We improve with repetition. You might be a musician. You might be an athlete. Even like in relationships, like in a marriage relationship or in a parenting relationship, the more we work at things and the more we do these things, the better we get at them. So there is improvement in repetition, so we value that repetition. So we shouldn't be surprised then if every other area of our life gets better the more we do it. We shouldn't be surprised when God allows trial after trial after trial, 
after trial because he understands the value of repetition. He says, you know. You know this because you've been here before. Because this isn't your first trial. You know that the testing of your faith is going to produce steadfastness. So value the repetition. If you're still a little doubtful this morning, I want, I want some help. I want to ask the congregation to help me with something. If you're here this morning and you have been following Jesus for 40 years or more, some of you are saying, can we get that calculator back out? Right? If, you, if you're here this morning and you've been a follower of Jesus for 40 years or more, can you just raise your hand? Raise it up nice and high. Look around, everybody. You've been following Jesus for 40 years or more. Okay, put your hands down. Same group, I want to ask you another question. Same group, you've been following Jesus 40 years or more. How many of you would say that after following Jesus all of those years, God has used trials to purify your faith? Let me see, same group, same group. Okay, put your hands back down. One more question, same group. You've been following Jesus 40 years or more. God has used trials to purify your faith. How many of you would also say that you have greater patience, steadfastness, and perseverance now because of those trials? Kind of looks like the same group of people, doesn't it? So if you're here and you are a newer Christian, a younger Christian in your faith, and you're looking at James's text and you're saying, I'm just not sure, James, that you're right. Let that be a testimony. What James said is correct. You know, because you've been here before, that the repetition of the testing of your faith is going to produce something of a patient, steadfast endurance. Value the repetition. Value it. Franklin D. Roosevelt said that calm seas don't make a good sailor. I would say that those who've been following Jesus for 40 years or more probably feel a little bit more seasoned as a follower of Jesus because of those difficulties. I respond properly to trials when I flip the focus. It's paradoxical. When I value the reps, we've been here before, God's bringing us through so that we can get better. And number three, when I trust the process. Trust the process. This is verse four. Look at it in your, in your scripture there. Verse four, James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now sometimes the hardest words to obey are the shortest ones. L-E-T. Let. You mean I got to like go through this thing, God? <laughs> you mean I got to like let go of it? I got to trust you? I've got to allow this? I've got to just weather the storm a little bit? Yeah. Let it happen. Let the steadfastness that was produced by the testing of your faith, let it do what God intends it to do in your life. Let it have full effect. We have this assurance that God always has a purpose. There is a full effect. I love that phrase. It means a full work, a completeness. God is doing something. Don't circumvent what God is wanting to teach you by trying to escape your trial. Don't look for a shortcut. Don't look for a way out. Let it do what it does. Let it have its full effect. And then what's the end result? The second half of verse 4, that you may be perfect 
and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the word perfect there, it's a little misleading. We think of perfection as sinless, spotless, flawless. That's not the idea here that James has. The word perfect means mature, fully developed. Think, think agriculturally. Think about a piece of fruit that is ready to be picked. It's mature. It's ripened. It's perfect. It's ready. So it's not about this moral sinlessness that is, the, that is the achievement here because we know that this side of heaven, that's not going to be the case. But it is a ripeness, it is a maturity that's taking place as you trust the process, as you go through the trial. So that you may be perfect, and then he says that you may be complete. There's no missing parts. No missing parts. Everything is there that God intends to be there. And then he further describes it, lacking Nothing. You know the irony of this? The irony is that we don't like trials because we're afraid of what we're going to lose because of the trials. That we're going to lack something because of the trial. Money, health, relationship, convenience, stability. These are the things that we're, we feel like we're going to lose because of the trial. And yet what James is saying is that that trial is actually going to leave you full of everything that you do need. So you lose more by not going through the trial. Because when you go through the trial, you are lacking nothing. You are full, complete, perfect, mature. So while the gospel makes us perfect, makes us righteous before God, it is the use of trials in our life whereby God brings that perfection to reality. Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, puts it this way in chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. By the way, that's personhood. So ladies, you're included in that as well. To mature manhood. Then he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've talked about this before, but maturity is not measured in years. Spiritual maturity. It's measured in the likeness of Jesus you can have a very young follower of Jesus who is advanced in their likeness of Jesus. They are advanced in their maturity because sometimes, let's be honest, those of us who've been following Jesus a long time, sometimes we pick up some stuff along the way that doesn't really look like Jesus. It looks a little bit more like religiosity and tradition and expectations of others. But maturity is about living, loving, and looking like Jesus. The full stature of Christ. So my encouragement to you this morning, church family, is don't quit. Don't quit. Trust the process. Trust that what God is doing in your life is for your good and for His glory. Quitting is going to be your most convincing enemy. He's good. He's loud. But He's wrong. Don't quit. Keep going. Let steadfastness have its full effect. And can I say to you this morning, if you're here this morning and you are on the verge of quitting, like you're right there, like it was just kind of an act of God that you even got here this morning, but you're in the room. If that's you today, I want to admonish you with three pieces of advice to help you to keep trusting. Number one, go deep with God. Go deep with God. If you're right there and you're about to quit, don't quit. Go deep with God. He is your greatest advocate. He is, he is for you. He is with you. He values you. He sees you as gold. That's why you're going through that trial. Go deep with God. Secondly, get a running partner. Don't do it alone. 
One of the greatest lies of the devil is that you have to do it yourself. And you have to journey that trial alone. Stop going through it alone. There are others in this room who've just testified a moment ago that they've been through some trials and there's a good chance that they've been through the one that you're facing right now for the first time. Get a running partner. Get somebody to come alongside you to pray with you, to encourage you, to share with you the scriptures that God used in their life 20 years ago when they went through that same trial. Get a running partner. And then three, keep the end in mind. Keep the end in mind. What is God doing? He's producing a maturity and a completeness in your life. Sometimes you just got to look up and over the trial long enough to see that it's going to be worth it after all. I remember an old preacher saying one time that one of the most encouraging verses that he had come across in the Bible is the, is the verse and the phrase, and it came to pass. And that was it. It came to pass. Like whatever you're going through right now, it's not the end. It's going to come to pass. I can't guarantee when, but I can guarantee it will. I can't even guarantee that the trial you're facing is going to come to pass in this life. But it will ultimately come to pass. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. Florence Chadwick was a pioneer for women's long-distance swimming in the 1950s. And in 1952, she attempted to do something that no other female swimmer had ever attempted to do. She was going to attempt to swim from the California mainland to the Catalina Islands, a distance of 21 miles. So she began her journey one morning. It was a cold, chilly morning, and there was a thick, dense fog. And so she began to swim the 21 miles, and Hour after hour after hour after hour she swam and she had the safety boats kind of rowing alongside her as she swam. But as she swam 13 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours, she became weak, she became tired, she became exhausted, and she became overwhelmed. And she gave up. So 15 hours into that swim, they pulled her up into that boat and as she pulled, was pulled up into that boat and was able to stand up and look towards where she was swimming towards, she was able to see just up and over and through that fog, and she was only about a half a mile from the land. The very next day at a news conference, this is what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Some of you right now, all you can see is the fog. Like That's it. You are so overwhelmed by the immediate circumstance in front of you. And I just want to tell you, the land is just in sight. God is working. God is moving. Keep going. Keep pressing in. Keep trusting God. Don't quit. And if you've just sort of drugged yourself in this morning, I hope that even this first paragraph from James will put some wind in your sails long enough for you to see that God has a purpose in that trial. I'm encouraged this morning by the example of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus as the example, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So friend, this morning, in between where you are and the joy set before you is a cross that you will have to endure. For Jesus, it was the physical cross that he endured for you and for me, but it was the joy that was set before him 
where he fixed his focus there. I don't know what the cross is that you are bearing this morning, but can I encourage you, fix your focus on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, and keep going. Right responses to trials yield the right results from trials. That's the big idea. It is a short, it is a sweet paragraph. It is just three verses long, but it is packed. This is the gospel on the ground. And let me just say this morning that it is only the gospel that can produce these results and these responses from trials. If you are trying in and of your own strength apart from Jesus to flip the focus and to keep going and to not quit, you can't do it. You can't do it. But Christ in you can. And that is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus in you working out what he has gifted to you. And so as followers of Jesus, those of us who put faith in Christ this morning, we want the gospel to gain traction. And so let God do in and through you what his gospel is intended to do. When the gospel has traction, here's what happens. You can flip the focus, count it all joy. You can value the repetition. This isn't the first time you've been here. And listen, it's not going to be the last time. But value it. And you can trust the process. The results are worth it. True faith will persevere. Not because the focus is on us, but because the focus is on Jesus. We want to learn to live this morning. We do this every week. We don't want to just learn to learn. We don't want to get fat with knowledge. We want to learn to live. We want application. So I've got three questions and we'll be done. Here they are. Number one, do you have saving faith in Jesus? saving faith. The faith that recognizes that apart from Jesus you cannot have an eternal relationship with God. I was so thrilled just this week I was able to sit down with a man at a coffee shop here in Tempe and I was able to share with him what that means. Not just religion but faith in Jesus and he put faith in Christ and I don't want to embarrass him this morning but he's sitting among us today. There is no greater decision than the decision to put faith in Jesus, saving faith in Jesus. Several of you in here have done that in recent months. But if you are here and you have not yet put faith, saving faith in Jesus, let me encourage you, trust Jesus alone. Your effort and your work is not going to give you the joy and trials that you've been trying and striving to have. It is only faith in Christ. Come to Jesus. My second question is this. If you have put faith in Jesus, how have you been responding to trials? How have you been responding? Like take inventory. Do your responses match the responses that we saw in James 1, 2, 3, and 4? How have you been responding? And if you've not been responding, then the gospel needs to get some traction. You've got, to, you've got to understand what Jesus has accomplished for you, what he has gifted to you, the spirit of Christ that he has placed within you, the grace of God that is upon you. His favor is there. And now allow that gospel to start to gain some traction so that you can respond as James articulates. Number three, how does God want to use your trial for more? For more. You see, your trial is not just about that trial. The difficulty and the challenges that you're facing, it's not just about you right now in this moment. Maybe God's going to use that very trial in somebody else's life through you in their life just down the road. 
Maybe God wants someone that you work with, someone that's a friend of yours that's not a follower of Jesus to see Christ in and through your life because of that trial. It's never just about you. It's never just about that trial. God is working all things together in your life. And so pray and seek God and ask God to reveal to you and to show you how that trial is meant for more. I believe that God wants to work in your life. And no doubt right now, there is something in your life that feels a little uncomfortable. Don't run from it. Don't push it out. Don't ignore it. Lean into it and trust it because the right responses will yield the right results. Can we pray together? Father, we are so grateful for the work of your word among us. And we are not capable of producing these things, but the gospel in our life can. The work of Jesus on our behalf can. So Lord, I want to pray this morning that if there's somebody here that has not yet put faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone, I pray that they would do that today, even right now, that they would lay aside their effort and their work and their version of you, that they would see that you are a good God, a gracious God, and a kind God who has been pursuing them. If there's somebody here this morning under the sound of my voice and they've just, they're right there at the end. They're about to quit. I pray that they would find that wind that they need for their sails from this passage. May your spirit work. May your spirit encourage. May your spirit reprove and rebuke and exhort and do the work that I cannot do. And may they keep trusting you. You are refining us gold is being produced in this room right now through the, through the heat and the intensity of the trials that are being experienced in this room right now. So do what only you can do and we will trust you for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at CityPointAZ. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.